Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but what does it say? The word of our God stands forever. So let's pray and ask God to teach us his word and give us understanding into this text this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us, uh, that you have given us in your word a very precious promises that teach us everything we need to know about uh, faith and life. And we ask uh, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us your word even today. Give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, as we've already said, today is Ascension Sunday. Uh, it's the Sunday closest to the 40th day after Easter Sunday. And it's the, the day that marks Christ's ascension into heaven and his being seated at the right hand of God. Now, um, we, as Christians, I think most of us, we tend to give uh, much thought to the incarnation of Christ at Christmas every year. We tend to give much thought to his death and resurrection at Easter time, Good Friday and Easter, as we should. But I think most of us, we, we often neglect to give much thought at all to the importance of Jesus Christ's ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The thing that One of the things that we confess every time we say the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, we, we say that, and we say that because it's an essential part of the Christian faith. The scriptures make numerous references to this great event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to try to number them this morning, I won't. I would probably be hard-pressed to include them all. There, it's that numerous. It's that many times that the New Testament especially mentions Christ's ascension. It is easily, the ascension is, one of the most neglected doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is saying something. There are many doctrines that are important that we don't think much of. In his book, it's a systematic theology called The Christian Faith, Michael Horton says this, he says, given the place of the ascension in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, which is Colossians is one of them, it is surprising that it plays a relatively minor role in the faith and practice of the church. Though affirmed, it does not seem to occupy the same status as Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. In other words, we affirm it. If someone were to ask you, hey, did Jesus ascend to the right hand of God? None of you, I don't think, would say no. We'd all affirm it and say, of course, the scripture says it. We just read about it in Acts chapter 1 and elsewhere. But uh, we affirm it, but do we make much use of it? Does it occupy any kind of place of prominence in our thinking? Does it... Uh, cause us to think differently about our lives and how we are to live. As believers, we should esteem and think highly of the ascension of Christ much more highly than most of us do. We should think of it really, if you think about it biblically, we should think of his ascension and his, we call it the session, or his being seated at God's right hand to rule over all things and intercede for us. We should think about that just as highly as we do the incarnation, that his death on the cross and his resurrection, because his ascension plays just as important a role in our salvation as any of those things do. You have been saved from your sin, if you're a Christian, by his death and resurrection. 
There's also a sense that the Bible says that you are right now being saved. Why? Because he is, he is at the right hand of God interceding for you on your behalf. Always. The book of Hebrews says he's able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to him by faith. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us according to the will of God at God's right hand. Now, the historical fact of his ascension is recorded for us in the Gospels, in Mark, in Luke, and in Acts chapter 1, as we just read earlier in the service. But you might be surprised to know that references to the ascension are found throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. If you were to do a a simple search, maybe if you have a, a Bible software on your computer or something, if you were to do a simple search for passages in the New Testament that speak of Christ being exalted to, quote, to the right hand of God, uh, I found nearly two dozen occurrences like that. Almost two dozen just for that phrase alone, not to mention the other parts that talk about his ascension. A number of those quote from our call to worship text, Psalm 110, Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you were here a number of months ago, it might be over a year ago now, Pastor Gary was here, and he called that God's favorite Bible verse. And why did he say that? Because it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament, in the entire Old Testament. The one verse from your Old Testament is quoted more times than any other passage. You might not think about it, but it's about the ascension. It's Psalm 110.1, and that must be for a reason. It must be an awfully important thing for us to think about and to understand. The book of Acts, for example, just to give you a few examples, the book of Acts uh, refers to Christ's ascension repeatedly. If you were to read its 28 chapters, you would find references and, and things about the ascension over and over again. And as we said earlier in the service, you really can't understand the book of Acts and what happens in it apart from the ascension, apart from Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews does the same thing. It's one of the main themes in the entire book. The entire book of Revelation, in a lot of ways, uh, is must be understood in light of the fact that Christ right now is reigning over all things for his church at the right hand of God and will return one day in glory to judge the living and the dead. That, that might be the grand theme of Revelation, the book that we've been studying for a number of months, is that Christ is reigning over all things right now. No matter how things may look, he is in charge and in control of all things for the sake of his church and for the sake of his glory. The Apostle Paul also refers to Christ's ascension repeatedly in his letters or epistles. For example, the book of Ephesians. You could probably read that easily today after lunch. It's six chapters long, not very long. In six chapters, the Apostle Paul refers to the ascension specifically at least three times in that letter. Three times. Paul both affirms the truth of that essential Christian doctrine, but he doesn't just say, Paul doesn't just say, hey, this happened. In fact, all three times, what, what is Paul doing when he mentions it? He, he's applying it to you if you're a Christian. He's saying, here's the difference the ascension makes and is supposed to make in your life. That's what he's doing in the book of Ephesians when he mentions that we've been raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. He's saying it's not just an historical fact about Christ, although it is that. It also has bearing upon you and upon your life and faith. 
That's exactly what he is doing uh, in our in our text this morning in Colossians chapter three. He's not just stating the bare fact of it; he's applying the truth of the ascension to our lives as Christians. In other words, the ascension is intended to make a difference in your life if you're a believer this morning. That's what Paul's doing in Colossians three. And look at verse one. He says, "If then you have been raised." With Christ, now, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little confession here. I was going to use this text for Easter Sunday because I said, oh, raised with Christ, resurrection. Now it includes that. But if you read the whole passage, what's he talking about? The resurrection is part and parcel with the ascension, but he's talking about Christ's ascension, that you've been raised up with Christ, and that's why you're supposed to what? Set your mind on things above where Christ is. He's talking about the ascension, if you look at the whole passage, it's pretty clear that is what he has in mind. Now, when Paul talks about believers, about you being raised up with Christ, he's basing that on another biblical doctrine that you may not have, never have heard of, and that is union with Christ. Union with Christ. One writer has called the doctrine of union with Christ, quote, the most important doctrine you've never heard of. And yet it's all through the New Testament. It's all through Paul's epistles. You could say that here in our text, because of that, we're kind of presented with not just one, but two of the most neglected truths of Scripture for the price of one. Union with Christ and Christ's ascension. So it's a good thing. I think this is one of the arguments to be made for some observance of a church calendar. Now, we don't, I don't believe in adding holy days. There's one holy day in the church calendar, and that's Sunday, the Lord's Day. I don't believe in adding other, other days in addition to. I think God has, has ordained uh, one day in seven for our benefit. But to observe a church calendar that brings, that makes sure that we don't miss out on emphasizing certain doctrines of the gospel, I think is a, is a helpful thing. And I dare say without Ascension Sunday in our minds, most of us probably would not give much thought to the Ascension even once a year. Now, the truth of your believer as a believer, your union with Christ is taught earlier by Paul in this same epistle in Colossians 2, 11 to 12, where he writes about baptism. And this is what he says there, Colossians 2, 11 to 12. He says, in him, there's that phrase, in who? In Christ. That language is union with Christ language, in Christ. If you're a believer, Paul says you are in him or in Christ. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, not a physical one. How? By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, and here it is, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's the doctrine of baptism. That is the, what, what baptism is a sign and seal of your union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So Paul, earlier in the, in the book, in chapter 2, is saying, is laying the groundwork for all this. He's saying, you died with Christ. When he died, in some sense, if you're in him, you died too. And in, in another sense, when, when he rose from the grave on the third day, if you're a Christian, you rose from the grave too. Paul uses that elsewhere in his epistles as an argument for why your life has to be different. The power of the resurrection has a present reality in the life of a Christian. You have been born again and died to sin and now are alive to Christ, just as surely as Christ has risen from the dead. We as believers in Christ are united to Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And our baptism, if you've been baptized, your baptism is a, what the scripture says, a sign and a seal of that union with Christ, that union with your Savior. So if you're in Christ, his death becomes yours. You have died in him by virtue of union with him. His burial, Paul says, as it were, is as if it were your own. And his resurrection from the dead is as if it were your own as well. That's why he says in verse 12 there that we were raised with him through faith. Christ's death is basically your death to sin. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection as well because you were raised with him. You're not just going to be raised physically one day. You were raised spiritually already from the dead. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, Paul says something similar. He says, but God, Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, what did God do? Made us alive together with Christ. He doesn't just say he made you alive when you used to be dead in sin, although that's true. He says, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and here it is again, and raised us up with him, and then he goes further, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He, you know, the, the church Christians are often called the body of Christ, and he is the head of that body because of the union with Christ. And so there's a sense in which the scripture is teaching us that where Christ is, we can't help but follow. In a sense, we're already there. It's why his ascension is the guarantee, as we're going to see later on this morning, is the guarantee of our home in heaven. You can't help but go where your head already is because you're united to Christ by faith. And so as believers, you and I, in some sense, by the work of the Holy Spirit, actually share in Christ's ascension as well as his death and resurrection. It's because we have been united to him by faith. And so in our text in chapter 3 here in Colossians, what is Paul doing? Paul is trying to apply, or he is seeking to apply to you and me, the implications and the power of the resurrection and ascension of Christ in our lives. You, you could say, if I could summarize Paul's teaching here in this passage, something like this. You have been raised with Christ, so live like it. You have been raised up with Christ, therefore live like it. That's his point here in our text. Now, the first thing he tells us to do in light of being raised up with Christ in verse 1 is what? Seek the things that are above. He says, verse 1, if you, if then, you could also translate this as since then, but if then you have been raised with Christ, and if you're a Christian, you certainly have. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, and what's above? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek heavenly things, not earthly things. Another way of saying this is to say that we're constantly be, to be seeking after Christ himself. He is to be the focus of our devotion and thoughts. Uh, we're to think about Christ. We're to think about all that we have in Christ. We don't need anything else for our salvation and our relationship with God. We have everything we need we have in Jesus Christ. Now, the believers in Colossae, the city of Colossae, the church there, what was happening there? Why is Paul writing this? What was the context in which Paul writes these words? They were being tempted by false teaching that had sprung up within the church. 
And that false teaching, as most false teaching seems to do, was pointing them to seek something other than Jesus Christ for their standing before God. This is the way cults operate. This is the way false teaching always seems to operate. It either tells you to look somewhere else other than Christ. Look to yourself, look to your own good works, look to something else. Or similarly, it'll say, well, you can have Jesus, but let's add something. You need Jesus plus this. Jesus is not enough, is what false teachers often often say. Now, it's easy to dismiss that and say, well, that would never happen with us. We'd never possibly think that way. But are we not tempted sometimes to think the same way? We need, we need a, a magic bullet. We need a, the, the blue pill or the red pill. Or we need something extra besides just Jesus. Now, you and I aren't dealing with the same false teaching, I don't think, that was uh, threatening the peace and purity of the church and the Colossian church. Uh, but I think it's helpful to have at least some idea of what they were dealing with to see why Paul writes what he writes. Now, it's been said that the false teaching that was going on with the Colossians is really hard to pin down. You know, we mentioned uh, men's breakfast yesterday. It's kind of like piecing it together is kind of like listening to a half of a phone conversation. You ever have that? You know, if somebody calls and it's an important call and you know it's an important call, but all you can hear, because they're not on speaker, is the person in the room talking and you're not hearing what the other person on the other end of the line is saying. And so you're like, stop saying yes and uh-huh and tell me what they're saying. Well, we have to kind of try to piece together what was going on from what Paul implies in what he says here. And now the church there in Colossae was being attacked by a false teaching that it's hard to pin down, but there's two things that are clear about it. It involves some kind of a combination of legalism, legalism or asceticism, and mysticism of some kind, which makes it even harder to pin down. But look back at Colossians 2, verses 16 to 19. Colossians 2, 16 to 19, Paul says, He's kind of hinting at what they were dealing with. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance or the body belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Paul's saying, you have everything you, you need in the head, which is Christ. And he's saying, therefore, don't let anybody pass judgment upon you over Old Testament uh, ceremonial things, and don't let anybody disqualify you by insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, some, you, you gather from that, some within the church were passing judgment on these Christians on questions of food and drink and observations of the Sabbath. Now, this sounds very much like it's some kind of a Judaistic element uh, that was present in the church there. They were focusing on Old Testament, the Old Testament ceremonial law involving, you know, you, you might know that involved many dietary restrictions, as well as the strict seventh-day Sabbath observance and other things. Now, what does Paul say about those things right here in the text? He says that those things are, quote, verse 17, a shadow, a shadow of the things to come, the things that were to come. But the substance belongs to what? 
or to whom? Christ. In other words, you know, I, I've often used this as an illustration. It's probably not the best illustration, but, you know, um, if you've been near an airport and there's a low-flying plane and you're driving or you're, you know, standing somewhere, the shadow of the plane is what hits the ground. You know, you, you see the shadow on the ground and you don't go, look, a plane. You don't point at the ground and say, look, kids, there's a plane. You know the shadow means there's something up there. And so you look up and you see the plane. That's kind of what's going on here. The shadow isn't the thing. The shadow points you to what's actually there. Those ceremonial laws were, were for a time God had put them there to point forward to Christ who was to come. But the substance of those things were not supposed to be the shadows. They were never, they were never an end in and of themselves. They were supposed to point to Christ. Any number of things in the Old Testament are of that variety. The temple itself, the sacrificial system, all those things were for a time, were signs that were point, pointing forward to Christ. And so what Paul's saying is stop clinging to those things that have been fulfilled. They aren't the point. Christ himself is the point. To cling to those things instead of clinging to Christ would be to cling to the shadows instead of the substance itself. Not only that, but this heresy involved a false mysticism of some kind. That is something you find throughout the church today. These strange forms of, of mysticism. It even says worship of angels. We can't imagine why somebody would do that. But And then he says in verse 18, they were going on in detail about visions. You know, the Colossians were being sold a bill of goods. They were being tempted to look to other intermediaries, angels in this case, to draw them closer to God. And they were being tempted and led astray by those who claimed to see visions. You know, false teachers and manipulative people in the church always talk like this. It is a sure sign of false teaching and unwise and ungodly manipulation when you see this kind of an emphasis in a church. What do they do? They don't base their teachings on the scriptures alone. They might use the scriptures, but they always add something to it when it comes to their faith and practice. They claim additional revelation, and so when you claim additional revelation from God, what are you really claiming? Authority. For example, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, they base much of their teaching on the supposedly prophetic visions of Ellen White. And they add these things, not in in uh, strictly speaking to the script, they don't add it to their Bible, but they act as if they do. They base their theology on her visions, which were false and are not according to Scripture. The Mormons, what do they do? They had an entire other book, the Book of Mormon, and they, they hold to the Bible, they say, but where do they get their theology from? Where do they get their theology of faith and practice from? The Book of Mormon. And all those places where it contradicts the Scriptures, what do they go with? They don't go with the scriptures, they go with the other, the other book. And the list goes on and on and on. False teachers of many kinds still do the same kind of thing today. They claim to have seen visions apart from the scripture or contrary to scripture. They often say things like, God told me so and so, or the Holy Spirit told me so and so, apart from scripture. Well, if somebody tells you the Holy Spirit told them something, what does that imply? Well, who are you to tell them no? Who are you to oppose them if God told them that? That's manipulation. That's abuse. That's false teaching. 
Brothers and sisters, if anybody ever stands in this pulpit or any other pulpit or any, if you listen to something on, online or whatever the case, if they ever tell you, God told me such and such, and the next words out of their mouth are not something like, in Colossians 3, do not listen to such a person. Do not listen to such a person. That's a red flag. That is a sign. If you want a sign, here's a sign. Beware of such a person. Beware of such a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what they do. They claim revelation because it's claiming authority. And if they claim authority, you can't question it. Yet what did Paul do in the book of Acts when the people in Berea, what did the, what did the Bereans do? The Bible says they were more noble-minded than the other, than the other people in the, in the previous town. And why were they noble-minded? Because when the apostle Paul was preaching to them, what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if the things that he said were so. The book of Acts, and I say Paul himself, commended them for that. You know, Paul could have said, what are you all doing? I'm an apostle. I have been commissioned literally directly by Jesus Christ. I saw him with my own eyes. And he, he, he commissioned me to be an apostle to you and to bring you the gospel. Take my word for it. The Apostle Paul could have said, take my word for it. He did not. Any pastor or teacher that tells you to take his word for it should be avoided and rejected. If they won't let you test things by the scriptures, they aren't to be followed. And that's, that's the tendency in every case in false teaching is to, to point you away from Christ and his word. That is always the tendency. That's always the way it seems to go. You know, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun that goes with false teaching as well. That was the effect of the false teaching that the Colossians were dealing with here that Paul writes about. They were being led astray from Christ by those who claimed authoritative visions and tried to point them back to the Old Testament ceremonial law and things like that. They were being pointed back to, to legalism and mysticism. And so what, what does Paul tell them and tell us? He implies in verse uh, 19 of chapter 2 to, to hold fast to the head. They weren't holding fast to the head. These teachers weren't. And Paul says, no, you should be holding fast to the head in whom you have all things. He says he doesn't want them to try to cling to legalistic requirements that would distract them from faith in Christ. They were looking to superstition. They were looking to legalism, and Paul would have them look to Christ for all things. Now, what's the appeal of false teaching? Why is it so appealing? You ever wondered that? Why are there so many false teachers? Because people keep falling for them. Why do people, even well-meaning Christians, fall for false teaching? You could probably think of a thousand different reasons. One, they're not being taught well enough to know better, maybe one reason. But Paul, I think, hints at the appeal of this particular heresy and what it might have been back in Colossians 2. This is like a survey of Colossians, I apologize. But Colossians 2, 20 to 23, listen to what he says there. Look at your scriptures. It says, if, if with Christ you died, or since with Christ you died, to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to, in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's, you can hear kind of the echo of the false teaching here, where they say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Here it is. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They seem wise. It sounds plausible. It sound, you know, we're always easily tempted by somebody telling us that you need to do a little bit more. Because that's how we're wired on our own. You just need to do a little bit more and then you'll be okay. And then you'll be there. It's adding works to faith. It's adding our own works to Christ's merits and his infinite righteousness that he has accomplished for our salvation. It says they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made. There's the phrase, self-made religion. Not just fake religion that somebody made up. I think it's a religion of being self-made, of doing things to make yourself right with God. And what does it say? It includes asceticism and severity to the body. In other words, don't touch, don't taste, don't eat. Refrain from certain things as if that were a substitute for godliness. We're always looking for a substitute for holiness because holiness is hard work. Following God's commandments is not easy, but if we can keep our sins, so to speak, but substitute other things that we hold in their place, that's the appeal. And that was the appeal then, and it's still the appeal now. Don't look at my life, but look at these things I do. That's what they were doing. You know, we are often tempted to look for secret knowledge or the inside scoop, so to speak, that others don't have, because we want to, we're prideful. We want to be set apart from the common folks, the common Christians. We want to be above the rest. We're always tempted to look for the secret to the victorious Christian life. And what is it that always seems to come along with such secrets? And I use that term pejoratively. Like, when somebody gives you or offers you the secret to the Christian life, what does it always end up in involving? Something more for us to do. You just need to add this one thing. You just need to do X, Y, or Z, and then things will be just fine. But what does Paul say in verse 23? He says, those things, uh, such as self-made religion and asceticism, that were being pushed on them were, quote, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Those things never stopped a man from sinning. Those things never helped in anyone's sanctification and following after Christ. And so what are you to do? I'm not offering you the secret. Paul doesn't give us a secret, although you could say that. It's an open secret. What are you supposed to do? What What is helpful What is helpful? What is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Paul tells us here. And it's not these other things, this legalism and and mysticism at all. He tells us to look somewhere else and look look at our passage again. He tells us to seek not the earthly things, not those those things of the Old Testament and those uh, legalistic ways, but the heavenly things, the things that are above, verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, You have everything you need, you just don't know it. Or you've forgotten it. We are to seek Christ and keep, it's present tense when he says seek. Keep seeking Christ and all that you have in him by faith. He is all that you need. Not only that, but he says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. King James says set your affection on those things. That's to be our singular focus as Christians, is to focus upon Christ and all that you have in Him. 
Doesn't sound like much of a secret, does it? But that's that's if there's a secret, that's it. Think about what you have in Christ by being united to him by faith. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. You know, baptism is one of the thing one of the things that baptism does is it marks your entrance into the church. It's also the the sign and seal of your union with Christ. The Lord's Supper is the sign and seal of your communion with Christ, your ongoing relationship with Christ that's based on that union that you have with him by by faith. So this morning I ask you, do you need help and victory? This is a rhetorical question. Do you need help and victory over temptation and sin? Yes, we all do. If we're in this life, we still struggle with sin. The place to look again and again is not legalism. It's not superstition. It's Jesus Christ. As elementary as it sounds, we are to look to Christ. He himself is our righteousness. He himself is our sanctification. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 to 31, he says, And because of him, that's Christ, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us or for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why do you boast in the Lord and not in something else? Because everything you need, you have in Him alone. Nothing that you do on your own is a replacement or a substitute or even a supplement to what Christ has done for your salvation. You know, if you do it yourself, if it's a self-made religion, as Paul says, then you're boasting in what you've done. It's like that, that Pharisee in that, uh, remember the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? And what did the Pharisee do? I thank you, God, that I'm great. That I, that's not what he said. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not even like this tax collector over here. He's bad. I'm all right because I've done X, Y, and Z. And which one of those men went home justified, Jesus says? Not the Pharisee, not the self-righteous, but the tax collector who wouldn't even look up to heaven. And what was his prayer? What did he say? Hey, thanks for blessing me. Obviously, I'm rich because I'm a godly man. He knew he was a tax collector. He knew he was probably a cheat. And he said, God be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of person God justifies. Not the self-righteous, but the one who looks to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. We must boast not in our own attainments, but in Christ. We must boast not in visions, and secret knowledge, but in Christ. We have to boast not in our legalistic practices and what we do, but in Christ alone. Well, the last thing our, our short text tells us, you might be wondering, well, why should I look to Christ alone? It might be obvious, it might not be. Paul gives us a couple reasons in verses 3 to 4. Why are we to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at God's right hand? Why are we, why are we to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Paul says in verses 3 to 4, he says, for, or because, here's the reason, for you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, these false teaching, these false teachers, they may have been it may have been some early form of Gnosticism, and they often boasted of secret or hidden knowledge. So Paul turns their own words back on them, and he says, your life is what? 
hidden with Christ in God. You want a secret knowledge? You want to talk about something hidden? I'll give you something hidden. Everything that you're going to be is in heaven now, in Christ. It's going to be made manifest one day, when? When Christ returns in glory. Then you'll see it. Then what is hidden will be made known and be made visible. Again, it's our union with Christ and its implications for your life as a Christian that we have to learn to keep in mind. And so we set our minds on Christ because in Christ we have died. We're no longer subject to those old superstitions and things that these people apparently wanted to hang their hat on. We've died in Christ. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Maybe you even have this verse memorized. Paul says, and this isn't just about Paul, it's about every Christian, but he says, I have been what? I have been crucified with Christ. Christ's death on the cross was Paul's death to sin. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, how does he live? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We walk by what? Faith, not by sight. And we walk by faith because we walk in Christ, who's at the right hand of God, and whose return we await patiently. Our real life, our life, our real life is not of this world, but it is of heaven now. Our real life is, quote, hidden with Christ in God, verse 3. And so because of that, you and I have to think and set our minds and our affections on the things of heaven and on Christ, particularly on Christ himself, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, and even our glorification. Not only is your life hidden with Christ for now, but Paul says when Christ, think about this phrase, is when Christ who is your life appears. I don't know how much more strongly Paul can say it. When Christ, who is your life, appears, it's only then, when Christ comes in glory, that we shall appear, that you, if you're a Christian, you will appear with Christ in glory. Jesus Christ's resurrection, as we were we looked at it around Easter time, his resurrection is the guarantee of, if you're a Christian, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of your own future glorious resurrection, if you believe in Christ. His glory in heaven at God's right hand is also the guarantee of your future glorification. Your, your glory in Christ is as certain as his is right now because you are united to him by faith. We don't have the glory in this life. We have the glory in the life to come. So we as believers in Christ, we have to seek to become more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. We have to try to become more and more what we already are. That's the motivation. That is the 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 strength and the power for sanctification in your life in this life is that you are joined to Christ by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, in his glory right now. Your sanctification now, one Puritan writer says, sanctification is glory in seed form. It's the smallest beginnings of it. You know, we have at home, uh, our kids are doing a, a science experiment with uh, butterflies. with, And they have the caterpillars, and now they're in the chrysalis form right now. And every, every day, they, they go up and they look to see if something has changed. Um, and that, that's us. The, 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 the butterfly is, is, the caterpillar is still there, but God is at work changing it. And one day, 
that caterpillar breaks out of that chrysalis and is a butterfly. Well, in the same way, we're going to be meta- changed, a metamorphosis by God's grace. And it's gradual in this life, but it's just as certain as Christ is at the right hand of God that you will one day be complete in glory in Christ. So we are to become what we already are in him. That is the motive, and that is also the power at work in us by the Holy Spirit. Now, this shows the wisdom, I think, of the writer of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's not a plug for tonight's Bible study, but take that as you will. Um, It has a a section on the Apostles' Creed, and so it has a, a section on the Ascension. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, it's one line, really. You could say it's two. He, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right? So two lines, uh, maybe one, depending how you look at it. The Heidelberg has six questions on the, on the ascension. Six on, on the ascension and his being seated at God's right hand. And one of those questions uh, deals with how his ascension benefits you as a Christian. And this is what it says. Question 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Maybe it's a question you've never thought of. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to you as a Christian that Christ ascended to heaven? It says this, answer first, three things. First, he, Christ, is now our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. He intercedes for you, for your salvation. Second, we have our own flesh in in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. We have our own flesh in heaven. In other words, he's the head and we are the body. Part of us, so to speak, is already in heaven, and so we are going to be there. What did Jesus say? It's to your benefit that I go away, because if I go away to prepare a place for you, what am I going to do? I'm going to come back and you might be with me where I am. He's going ahead of us to prepare a place for us, and if he does that, he's certainly going to come back and bring us there. Third, he sends his spirit, think of Pentecost, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge, a down payment. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. He takes the phrase right out of Colossians 3. He says, think about those two things he connects there. He says that Jesus in heaven right now, himself, being bodily in heaven, is a sure pledge that he's going to come back for us to take us home. And then he says the Holy Spirit is as a corresponding pledge that we might have our heavenly home, that we might not seek after earthly things, but after the things above. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness in Christ. In Christ, you have justification. In Christ, you have righteousness, perfect righteousness in Christ. You have sanctification and the end of it, glorification. You have all of those things as surely as Christ died for your sins and is now risen from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Because he is your pledge, your down payment, your guarantee in heaven. And he has given you his Holy Spirit as another pledge or down payment of your home in heaven. What does it mean? We have a double guarantee by God's grace of all that you have in Christ, of all that you're going to be and have one day in heaven. A double pledge, a double guarantee of those things. And so what does Paul say? Set your mind not on earthly things. Set your mind on heaven where Christ who is your life is and on the glory that is to be revealed in you when he returns. 
In other words, in the, in, in, the, in the time being, the time while you're waiting for that, become what you are in Christ by God's grace and the work of his spirit until that day. That's, that's the message of Colossians 3. Let's, let's pray.